Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. More people today have been forcibly displaced from their homes than at any time since World War II. According to the UN, 3.5% of the global population are international migrants. More than 25 million are refugees, and another 3.5 million are asylum seekers. The Syrian civil war alone has forced millions of refugees into neighboring countries or on dangerous journeys across the Mediterranean. In 2016, the EU and Turkey made a historic agreement to curb migration into Europe. But now, the number of arrivals on the Greek islands is surging, leaving a divided EU in dire need of a common migration strategy. For this episode, we travel to Marseille, France, where policymakers and experts from around the region were gathered at GMF's Mediterranean Strategy Group. This year, the meeting was centered around the role frontline cities play in migration. Um, because Marseille is being a true example for a Mediterranean city, for a, for a long story of migration. We sat down with key players working on migration policy in countries like Jordan, Morocco, and Turkey to hear how different communities are managing this issue. First, we caught up with our colleague Stephen Bosacker, director of GMF's Cities Program, and Jessica Beither, a migration fellow based in Berlin. So Jessica, to start, what are the key issues surrounding migration in the Mediterranean and further into Europe that you think are most important to watch right now? Yes, sure. One aspect of the migration picture in the Mediterranean, the images that we all have of of boats crossing and trying to reach Europe, these irregular crossings across different parts of the Mediterranean that really reached a peak in uh, 2015 with over a million registered crossings. If you just look at the numbers per se, these have actually gone down and they've gone down so significantly. Last year, 2018, roughly 140,000 registered crossing the Mediterranean, which is pre-2014 level. So just from the basic numbers, you can actually see that things have normalized in that sense, if you can speak of it that way. However, the dangers of crossing the Mediterranean, so the percentage of people dying per person crossing have increased. It's become much more deadly. The UN Agency for Refugees refers to the Mediterranean as the world's deadliest sea crossing. Here are the coffins of some of the 13 people who But as many as 250 are missing, feared drowned. One part of the migration picture, much bigger picture or more long-standing picture, I think, is a the issue of regular migrations. Just, of course, the Mediterranean region has always been a very mobile region among peoples. And second, that it's not all about how maybe uh, European countries are affected, but of course also the countries on the southern rim of the Mediterranean. So um, anything from the eastern Mediterranean hosting large amounts of forced displaced people, but also countries on, on the western Mediterranean like Morocco that receive a lot of migrants from sub-Sahara Africa may be on route to Europe, but they may also be staying there. Um, And last but not least, if you look at the situation in Libya, where um, just the security situation there is having different types 
of influences, a people needing to leave Libya that are not Libyans, other people being stuck in Libya in these detention camps that we've seen, but also now with a crisis and, and, and violent conflict ensuing, you have a whole bunch of internally displaced people in Libya to give a general roundabout of the picture there. So Stephen, tell us a little bit about the role that cities specifically are playing when it comes to migration and managing migration. First of all, there's probably no global or uniform attitude by cities. They vary by city, just like immigration policies to some degree vary by country. That said, the exciting part about the mashup here of cities and migration is that cities do work and provide services in their day-to-day work that may need to be emphasized or accelerated in a crisis situation with the movement of people into their communities, but in some respects have really good muscle to manage what Europe might be calling a crisis or what is occasionally a crisis, but is really, in some respects, day-to-day work for many cities. The really interesting part about the last 24 hours here in Marseille is the number of people who have said, this really isn't a crisis. The movement of people has happened for generations, and cities are used to it. People choose cities and move in and out of cities, and there is a flow of people in and out of cities all the time. And so to the degree that the cities go deep on human services, health care, on providing for housing subsidies, all of those tools and methods and practices that they've developed are useful in what happens when people come into their city and they get that influx of people. And maybe just to add on to that, the way cities on the Mediterranean, say in the eastern and the western Mediterranean, is they face different issues. And, you know, eastern Mediterranean cities in, in Lebanon or Jordan really dealing with this massive or really large influx of refugees is really straining to capacity. But um, if you move to the west, to Morocco, you have a different type of migrant population, a lot of people that may not want to stay in Morocco, for example, or have ended up there. But as Stephen said, it's basically integrating into the city life and, and products of services that cities have been doing in any case. What are some examples of things that are going well in terms of integrating migrants? And what are some of the challenges? Well, really on both sides of the Atlantic, in North American cities and in European cities, We hear, in terms of development, the um, cities building inclusive economies. And so, again, they're doing this just by their nature. Another point that's really come up in the last few days is the attitude that people bring to migration. And for a lot of cities and a lot of city leaders, I would say the best city leaders bring an attitude of great welcome to migrants and to immigrants, partly because of what they get to build because of that. Integration, again, becomes part of the approach that you're going to use to bringing new people into your community. Um, Are there challenges? You bet. No one would deny that it can be difficult to mix old and new populations. But many cities both are looking at this in how they build in their their standing uh, values of equity and how they use a lens to kind of tap the talents of their whole population, of all residents. And it is about believing that the breadth of talents, the breadth of opinions really contribute to something powerful in not only who you become as a city, but really what you offer. Maybe just one other thing on that note, Stephen, that has come up that was very prevalent in our talks and our discussions was this whole idea of how 
perceptions on the migration issues are maybe sometimes as important or more important than what's actually happening and um, the role that city leaders can play in that discussion. So the whole issue is how local host communities actually perceive of the issue and how then we either as policy makers, policy stakeholders, local officials, but also as other actors, learn to better communicate about migration. So how do we actually reach the people that may have concerns or that are not sure how their city is changing? What can city leaders, and I don't know, Stephen, what you think uh, or from your experience, the role that mayors and city leaders can actually play in that regard? Well, and and, and I want to stay on that issue of perception, but I want to juxtapose it to this issue of facts. Everyone says local policymaking, national policymaking needs to be about evidence-based policymaking and the importance of facts. Facts are critically important, and we've heard that the last uh, couple days here in Marseille, that you've got to understand the real data. And you get both to the power of what people understand when they know the real data and the real truth and facts, but you can't ignore um, the perceptions. And perceptions are part of what makes the policy. And so it is a combination of the both. And in this particular issue, sometimes if we are not communicating well, perceptions can take over. I think you're absolutely right, that you've got to bring the, a good attitude toward this, and you've got to understand the movement of how residents are receiving ideas and try to make that work together. Over the last few years, a number of global compacts have been signed and adopted. Maybe Jessica can elaborate a little bit on what those compacts are first. And then I would love to hear from both of you where you see the city playing in these global compacts. Yeah, so from the uh, international level, what we saw last year in 2018 was actually the signing for the first time on the UN level two global compacts between member states, one on refugees and the other on migration. And there are overall 23 goals in these compacts or in this migration compact and They really range on a whole variety of issues from uh, inclusion, social cohesion issues to um, migration management, to migration data collection, to the issue of return and reintegration. So really spanning the whole area of points that migration actually touches upon. And so now it's actually up to different actors. And this is not only national actors, but also civil society and also the local level and the city level. And I know there's a quite a few initiatives of getting that started. And I also would add that, you know, what we see in the newspapers quite often is a difference in philosophy on this between cities and their national governments. Um, That's not true everywhere. Uh, We just heard testimony from a local leader. He is a a staff member of the city of Gaziantep in Turkey, and he commented about the value of the national policy being similar to what the mayor's policy was on this and how important that was for them to get the work done. They've had 500,000 refugees, mostly from the Syrian uh, conflict, and they have done a remarkable job of moving them out of camps and into the city and and city life. In that case, it was a common support and a linkage between the two, but not in every place. Already, when you guys are ready, I'm rolling. Under, can you just talk a little bit about how you've handled these challenges sitting right on the border with Syria? Actually, still of Gaziantep started to respond to refugee issue at the very beginning of the civil war.
we only had two options. One is to close your borders and to let those people die in their country or open your borders and provide a safe and secure place for people who are trying to protect their lives, who are trying to protect their children. That's Ander Yalçın, the Director of Migration Management for the Turkish city of Gaziantep, which sits near the southern border with Syria. Gaziantep has absorbed half a million people fleeing from the war, increasing its existing population by nearly a third. Turkey and Gaziantep choose the second one. We opened the doors, but it's not enough. When you accept people to your hometown, to your country, you should do something more. The host community members, Turkish citizens, they help a lot and they shared what they have. For example, they were families with very young children and babies. Even some families invited them to their houses for a secure place. But when the length of staying gets longer, of course, it also creates some reaction on host community members. But here, the local authorities, and especially mayor, she took initiative and she play a role as a change maker. She explained that refugees are not the problem. They are human and they are not problem. With that idea, she worked for refugees and also she worked for host communities. Working together with central government and also with international actors, we established effective social services based on human rights and also social justice to provide opportunities and also different support for refugees and we would like refugee population and also host community population to live together in harmony. And I may say that we establish new fields, spaces that will make Syrians and also Turkish people come together. When you open those spaces for them, you easily realize that actually the rest they are handling. When they get to know each other, Actually, it's not a problem anymore because they feel that they share nearly the same destiny. They have the same desires. They have the same fears. When they get to know each other, now you see in the community the reaction, the tension is getting really low and decreases. Maybe one of the main takeaway is that migration is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be managed. Instead of trying very hard to protect our borders, we should focus on protecting people and our own humanity. At the same time, I deal with migration, but also I deal with the transnational uh, organized crime. So This is Khaled Zerwali. Director of Migration and Border Surveillance in Morocco's Interior Ministry. Morocco has long been a springboard for migrants en route to Europe, and increasingly it's become a final destination itself for many sub-Saharan migrants. Earlier this year, Morocco reached a deal with Spain to contain irregular migration. In 2013, when everybody was scared of migration because of the so-called migration crisis in Europe, Across Europe, the number of Syrians seeking asylum has doubled in the last year. Some pay with their lives 
For others, the dream of a new life has ended. It's been called the continent's shame, the human tragedy of migrants trying to get to Europe. Morocco, under the leadership of His Majesty, decided to have a national strategy by which it allowed about 50,000 migrants to regularize their residency status in Morocco. Our strategy tries to cope with three segments. How to prevent the irregular migration of nationals to Europe and promote the legal channels for migration. How to integrate the foreign migrants who want to stay in Morocco and how to combat criminals who try to take advantage of the weakness and vulnerability of migrants. Today, we are proud to have a model by which we found this the best compromise between integration and respect of human dignity, at the same time being tough on criminals and being tough on border control. And I think this is the uniqueness of the Kingdom of Morocco. What are some of the examples of the specific strategies that you've implemented that might even be able to be replicated in other places? We try to give the same rights, the one that uh, nationals have, to, to migrants. For instance, free access to healthcare, integration for free of kids in the education system. We have about 10,000 kids enrolled in our education system. Promoting professional training. We have about 22,000 adults who are enrolled in our, uh, for free, actually. And we give about 8,000 scholarships for migrants to enroll in our universities. We also give the right to access to social housing, just like any Moroccan. The way we did the regularization of residency status to migrants is we integrated in our provincial committees the representatives of migrants in these committees so that they can defend the right of migrants to integrate our society. And we think it's a well for our society to integrate the migrants. We empower local actors, the city, but also civil society to work together so that they can find the best recipes for the integration because there is a cultural aspect to be taken care of. So we don't want to be in cities where internal borders are being built or ghettos to be done for migrants. No, we want to have an integration so perfect that it can enrich our own culture. And we see more and more success stories in the cities. Cities today, although they don't have all the means to cope with the challenges that the migration is bringing, but there is a lot of ambition, there is a lot of transparency in dealing with the issue in coordination with the civil society. And civil society is a key component because we need to work closely with the representatives of migrants because those are the ones that will make it easy for everybody to understand the culture and to make it easy for the integration aspects to be implemented. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing your government moving forward? in coping with this migration issue, which continues to be a challenge? The way we see it, we, we, we don't think that migration is a problem. It's not a mathematical equation to which we will find a solution. It's a human issue. Morocco is at the corner of Africa. We are at 14 kilometers from Europe. We are open to the Atlantic Ocean. So we think that migration should be managed in a, a spirit of shared responsibility. Everybody has to work in the same direction. We have what we call the Rabat process, by which Morocco was a pioneer in gathering around the same table countries of destination, countries of transit, and countries of origin. And the idea is to have an action plan so that everybody works in the same direction, respect of human dignity, respect of human rights of migrants, but also promote the legal and regular channels for a safe 
an orderly mi migration. That's why the uh, international community decided to organize in Marrakesh last year, if you remember, the Global Compact on Migration. And I think this is the, the first milestone that humanity has put so that we can build upon something serious in which everybody will, uh, will abide by the spirit of uh, shared responsibility. Jordan is a country that has been deeply affected by the Syrian civil war. It has the world's second highest proportion of refugees to native inhabitants. The capital Amman, a city with a rich tradition of being a melting pot of different cultures, has been a primary destination for Syrian refugees. Nisreen Al-Araj is the city's chief resilience officer. Actually, refugees, uh, they form part of the uh, history of Amman because Amman has been receiving ref refugees for the last 100 years, actually. And they are part of the citizens and inhabitants of the city today. So I think that it is the um, policy of Jordan in general to have open doors for migrants and refugees and also for Amman to be welcoming uh, those refugees who, were, who came to Amman and lived uh, and shared with the city its resources. Sources. So it is part of our, our history uh, to welcome refugees. It wasn't easy throughout uh, the way. Jordan has uh, limited resources. We have uh, some major economic uh, challenges. We have also scarcity in water. We are one of the poorest countries in water. Also, we have major uh, shortages in energy. The country of Jordan also uh, has put a lot of effort to make sure that every child who comes and lives in Jordan uh, receives education. No child is left without education. No child is left without health care. And this put a lot of burden, a lot of stresses on the country and on the municipality for providing its services. So this was not really an easy job, an easy responsibility, but Jordan is doing its a human uh, responsibility. You know, when we have any of the neighboring countries who are in conflict and they come to Jordan, Jordan cannot close its doors. And so the city of Amman has received migrants and refugees who first of all came to the borders and then came to the urban areas and lived in the city. The municipality provided its services to all the citizens, regardless if they were refugees or migrants or originally Jordanians or whatever their status. We became more prepared. Previously, we did that out of our good intentions, human responsibility, but we did not have our own plans. Today, we have plans. We have plans to improve the resiliency of the city, the social resilience, the climate resilience, the urban resilience. So we put our resiliency strategy in 2017 and we are implementing it. It is supposed to make the city more resilient to to shocks and stresses. And uh, this is something that makes us more prepared if anything happens in the future. Municipalities and cities have role towards the citizens, regardless if these citizens were refugees or migrants or just visitors or tourists. There is no differentiations. People are human. Wherever they live, they need to be served. They need to have access to services in a human way and dignified uh, manner. Before we left Marseille, we also spoke with Dr. Monica Wolfeld about the complex nexus between migration and crime. Dr. Wolfeld is the German Chair in Peace and Conflict Prevention at the Mediterranean Academy of Diplomatic Studies in Malta. I 
think it's very dangerous to speak of migration as a security threat. It is a security issue and it's a very complex one. The links are not straightforward. They deserve in-depth analysis, they deserve statistical analysis, and they deserve an open and frank discussion. It is very often that politicians refer to transnational threats or new threats and speak of migration, uh, criminality and terrorism. In fact, migration is a very different phenomenon from criminality and from terrorism. Migration is the movement of people. It is a positive aspect which brings a lot of energy and innovation and allows economies to grow and allows for transfers of funds into less developed communities, whereas you really cannot say the same about criminality and terrorism. Now, when you analyze what the links are between migration and criminality and terrorism, it is a complicated issue because even looking at uh, statistics of criminal acts, you're not going to get a straightforward answer. Population, and it so happens that the um, most recent waves of migration into Europe, at least, have consisted to a large degree of young males. And if you look at criminality rates in the same demographic group in the host population and in the migrant populations, um, they are similar. So there's a lot that you need to look at and a lot to study. Politics has to reflect, the press has to reflect on its responsibility in reporting and evaluating such facts. There has to be meta-analysis as well. The studies are not compatible. Sometimes you, you cannot use them to compare. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. In terms of terrorism as well, it's a very similar situation. Some studies have reported how many investigations into possible links to terrorist organizations among migrants who have been arriving in the latest wave have been launched. But launching investigations is not the same as actually coming to a conclusion about such links. And even if you look at the numbers of investigation launches, it's actually quite a negligible number. The majority of migrants who arrive in Europe have no link to criminal activities, have no link to terrorist activities, beyond the fact that the majority of them are forced to use the services of people, smugglers, and those are criminal organizations to organized criminality. European countries have launched a battle against human smuggling, and rightly so. It's a terrible, shocking business that accepts people die as part of the business model. But at the same time, they have to make sure that this doesn't affect the human security of migrants, that this doesn't result in even more abuses of human rights and more death than it has so far. How big of a role does media coverage and the rhetoric that comes from leadership in countries like the U.S. and Germany and in the EU, how big is that role in shaping the way that the public sees migrant populations as it relates to crime and security issues and and how do you think, in your opinion, how do you solve for that? Or how do you kind of prevent this from happening? Well, what has been happening is that where there have been individual and high-profile crimes that have taken place, they have been reported 
quite often a very hyped way without providing a background of statistical analysis or relating this to the fact that very often um, the crimes that are committed by migrants are migrant-on-migrant crimes. And therefore, it fed into this populistic discourse, into a sort of spiral of fear that now is engulfing European countries as they are trying to cope with migration. I think there have been some efforts to cope with that situation. In Germany, uh, press limits itself by not reporting the nationality of the perpetrators of the crimes. In other countries, full names and nationality are reported. There are examples that one can follow to uh, try to address that sort of spiral of fear that's developing. I think none of this could take place without this populist drift, the, the, the feeding of this rhetoric into politics. Politicians must address the issue honestly and directly. There's no point in hiding facts, but there's also no point in leaving misperceptions to linger and feeding off them in a, in a, in a political context. Can you speak a little bit about the screening process that migrants go through when they come to the shores of Europe? How does that feed into kind of the issue, the security issues as well, and then the public's perception of how migrants are screened when they're entering Europe? One aspect of state sovereignty is that states decide who enters and who resides on the territory. It's an important aspect of the function of a state, function of a government. Populations do look to states to see how they carry out that function. During the the, uh, so-called migration crisis, that that function was not exercised to its fullest due to the uh, migratory pressure more than anything else. Instead of letting people to linger at borders, creating crises in neighboring states, uh, some countries have taken the decision to not fulfill the registration process to um, the extent uh, that it would have been necessary. Those were the realities on the ground. The decisions were probably justified in most cases, but they also resulted in in the perception within some European countries that our states have lost control of who's entering, who's staying, for what purpose, with what background. That's something that the police forces and border management forces across Europe are coping with now, and there will be long-term consequences in terms of trust and perceptions of security implications of migratory waves uh, arriving in Europe. We have to keep a bit of a perspective on this. There were mistakes made but it was an extraordinary situation. When we're looking towards the future, what do you think are the biggest challenges when it comes to the security dimensions of the migration issue in the Mediterranean and and in Europe? I would think that the biggest challenge currently is prioritizing human security over national security concerns. Returning to the thought that we are dealing with human beings who deserve protection, who have the right to life, the uh, situation in the Mediterranean where the overall numbers of migrants crossing the Mediterranean have dropped, but the percentage of people who have drowned while undertaking this crossing has gone up. That is something that is absolutely unacceptable. And the fact that the Mediterranean is a very busy sea And it's a very militarized sea. And there is a European Union mission. And there are, at least when they allowed NGOs active. And yet, 
such an amazing number of people have lost their lives up until today. That is something that should make us think about our priorities. That's why I think that saying that migration is a security issue is a dangerous undertaking. The securitization of the migration issues has dire consequences, in particular for the human security of migrants, focusing on battling smugglers in the Mediterranean has the side effect of not focusing on saving lives. Migration is related to security issues, but not in a direct way. Not in a direct way. The, the migrants are the victims of the human smugglers. They are not the perpetrators. To focus on the human rights abuses that take place is absolutely correct. But the biggest human rights abuse in this context is the fact that people are drowning. The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. Special thanks to Charlotte Bransma and Alberto Taglia Pietra for their help with this episode. Out of Order will be back with a new season in early 2020. That's a wrap. <laughs>